nobody can argue that it makes sense to eliminate CO2 emissions at all costs. And yet that's clearly what we're pursuing in the realm of energy. And it's having really all, it's having small version of what could happen, but deadly costs around the world. Welcome back to the Kevin Roberts Show. Thanks so much for joining us each week. As you know, we always have a leader, a visionary, often someone who is a researcher, always a smart person who's making a difference. And this week's guest, I will tell you, has been an acquaintance for several years. We'll get into how we met and why that's important to the future of America and the future of humankind. But just wanted to start by thanking you for making this show possible. You know the drill. If you have not yet subscribed, do so. And if you haven't given us a rating, the one bit of socialism we adhere to is that we only accept five-star ratings. So joining me is my friend, Alex Epstein, who has done just yeoman's work. In fact, better than a yeoman heroic work, telling the truth about energy, about the so-called climate emergency. And as an academic, I often refer to myself as a recovering academic, someone who uses data, uses studies, uses what I would call impeccable, philosophical, rational thought to get to the heart of the truth. That's a long-winded way of saying, welcome, Alex. Man, it's hard to get a better introduction than that. Let's try to live up to it now. Yeah, that's right. Standards very high. No, it really is great to see you. We spent a couple of years, several years ago, together often in Texas and a couple of other places as at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and at Life Powered. You were vital to us as we were trying to figure out how we could marshal right thinking, but not for the purposes of a partisan agenda or even an ideological agenda, but for the purposes of human flourishing to develop a policy agenda that we could advocate. And, and that's also a way of saying thank you. You have this wonderful new book. Well, out. I should just say, yeah, that, I mean, I think it turned out quite well yeah. in terms of what happened. Because I remember, you know, your predecessor at TPPF and worked with you at the time, Brooke Rollins, and she tried to recruit me to kind of run something like this. I told her, like, I am the wrong guy for many, many reasons. I don't want to work for anyone, but but I think it's a great idea. And I consulted on it a bit at the beginning. And what I really liked about it is this was really a consistently pro-human pro-freedom initiative. And if you see, that's that's pretty rare among think tanks. And so they really started it and they really embraced this concept that I at least popularized in energy of human flourishing. And so it's been great to see them do all of this good work in Texas and nationally, really being pro-human, pro-freedom. And one thing about them is even, you know, they're not partisan against coal, which I think many people are. So they're really trying to do the right thing and they've assembled this smart group of people. So it's very exciting when, you know, to have had a role in something like that, because it's it's kind of like you you created this thing a little bit or you co-created it, and then it does all this amazing work while you sleep. <laughs> That's well said. So we're, we're going to get into the policy and, and somewhat into the book, of course, which, which is good. As I told you, I did enough of my homework in reading enough of the book to, to be able to say someone needs to buy it. They need to read it. It's really important, and that's heartfelt. But I always like to start with the story of our guest, and by that, how is it that you got into this work? I know enough about your academic background that at some point you weren't thinking about becoming an energy expert, but tell us how your journey brought you to this point where when you say something about energy and climate policy, the rest of us have, have to stop and really digest that. It is the last thing I expected to be doing to be an energy, let alone fossil fuels. People, I think sometimes they see, oh, this guy is kind of the world's leading champion of fossil fuels. It must be the fossil fuel industry, like somehow picked this guy out and groomed him to be this amazing, uh, you know, effective champion. I wish that they did that 
uh, to people. But when I got, even when I came up with my basic ideas, I didn't even know anyone in the industry, let alone have a financial relationship with them. So I started out, I grew up near here in Chevy Chase, Maryland, a uh, very liberal environment. Although I give my parents credit for not trying to, uh, you know, push anything politically on me, which was a huge advantage. And actually I was staying with a friend of mine recently here and he was the first conservative person I ever met. And it was just interesting that are openly conservative. And it was, it was a good model for me to have people of different political views who were smart versus just thinking, oh, there's only one kind of political view that, that is smart. So that was a really interesting kind of thing. Um, and so that made me open-minded, but I still had this belief having mostly a math and science background that, you know, we're causing this climate catastrophe and we should get off fossil fuels somehow. And so I was kind of the last person you'd expect to be a champion of fossil fuels. And what I, what I really um, connected to is when I was 20, I decided the weirdest decision to my advisor, I'm going to leave computer science and I'm going to become a practical philosopher, which most people think is a contradiction in terms. But for me, I tried to explain this to him. He, my advisor was not impressed, but I tried to explain, no, this is the most practical field. Like you think I'm leaving to do something useless, but actually philosophy studies the basic framework that guides our thinking and action, including it studies our thinking methods, our assumptions, and our values. And all of those things, if you don't reflect on them, you are probably going to do something really bad. And so, you know, to fast forward, when I got to fossil fuels, uh, maybe when I was 27, before that, I was just writing about everything under the sun and I never found anything I was passionate about that I wanted to become an expert at. But when I, I started learning a little bit positive about energy and fossil fuels and started realizing that fossil fuels really have some benefits that are very, very hard to replace. Like say in agriculture, diesel powered agriculture allows one person to do the work of a thousand people and a natural gas derived fertilizer literally makes it possible for 8 billion people uh, to live. And I realized none of our alleged experts are talking about this. So they're ignoring the benefits of a technology while only focusing on the negative side effects. And imagine if you did that with a prescription drug, like you have an infection and you're looking at the drugs and you're like, I'm not going to look at these benefits. I'm only going to look at the side effects. You wouldn't take the drug and you might die of the infection. And basically what fossil fuels do is they, they cure an infection called poverty, right? Because what fossil fuels do is they are a uniquely cost-effective way of providing the energy that powers the machines that make the world an abundant and safe place by making us productive and prosperous instead of the naturally deficient and dangerous place it is when we're using manual labor. And so I just realized, oh my gosh, there are these amazing benefits and nobody is talking about them. And that made me wonder, well, what's really the full story about fossil fuels? And then that's when I decided, okay, I guess arrogantly, I'm just going to become an energy expert. And kind of even in philosophy, I decided after I decided very early, I'm not even getting a master's degree, let alone a PhD. Like I'm very big into self-education and just the belief that I'm just going to become the best. And then you can, like, it doesn't matter what the degrees are. And if your only argument against me is I don't have the right degree, you're not going to win that argument. And so I just thought, like, I just learned, I just kind of inhaled energy. And then here we are 15 years later. <laughs> it, it really is a great story. And one of the things that I learned from you in the meetings that, that we were having several years ago in Texas, and this is, was specific at the time to understanding fossil fuels and energy, but it also was important from the standpoint of our, our right of center perspective which is not accepting a framework of philosophical understanding that is imposed upon us, A, and B, that's insufficient for understanding. And I think if someone were to read this book, Fossil Future, 
but if they would see that, but also they would see that in basically anything that you write. You've been remarkably consistent in in that particular chapter in your career of really encouraging those of us who are in the field of making policy and suggesting policy to be rigorous in our thinking. And and we'll before the end of this conversation, I know, get into not rigorous thinking from the other side. But before we get to that, at the center of everyone's philosophy is is some claim some assumption, some motivation that drives their understanding. And am I correct in assuming that yours is human flourishing? Yes. And let's let's break that down. So I think there are three core things that frame thinking about energy. And I, and I mentioned in philosophy, you have uh, methods, assumptions, and values. And I'll, I'll go in the reverse order now because we'll start with values, which is where human flourishing comes up. And it's important here when we're thinking about, we're thinking about Fossil fuels, we're thinking mostly about the world as a whole because it, it has global implications positively. And of course, people are obsessed with the global implications negatively. So when you're thinking about the world, the value question is, the most important question is, what is your primary moral goal? So when you're thinking about competing priorities, like you hear about this polar bear and these people are starving and this kind of thing, like what's your primary moral goal? And I think the basic alternative is, is your, your goal is to advance human flourishing on earth or to eliminate human impact on Earth. And, and to make it more concrete, in our energy conversation today, the particular goal that dominates is to eliminate CO2 emissions in particular. It's that impact above all. And I'm not exaggerating because I talk in, in Fossil Future, the number one moral goal, and I'm not exaggerating, the number one moral goal of corporations today and governments is absolutely eliminate CO2 at all costs. That's why the Paris Climate Accord is considered the most moral agreement and anyone who defies it is evil. And that's why all these corporations are committing to net zero. They're not committing to energy abundance. They're not committing to global human flourishing. They're not committing to global human empowerment, which global human flourishing, right? They're committing to net zero at all costs. Now, the interesting thing about this is no one, almost nobody would say, my goal is to eliminate CO2 emissions at all costs. And I don't care how many people die in the process, but that is actually the goal people are operating on. And so one of the hazards of not being philosophical and not thinking about your framework is that you accept goals implicitly or you don't or even explicitly but you don't know all of their implications. But the world is absolutely thinking of this issue in terms of let's eliminate our emissions at all costs and that's why we're considering absolutely drastic things. And this turns out to be a horrific goal because we're seeing even when we pursue that goal 2%, 3%, we have a global energy crisis. But so it is that's a long way of saying, yes, the core value I have here is advancing human flourishing on Earth versus eliminating human impact on Earth, and in particular versus eliminating CO2 emissions on Earth. Regardless of the impacts of CO2 emissions, you, it cannot be our goal to eliminate them at all costs. At most, they are one factor in what advances human flourishing. This has implications for our thinking, but also to our discussions in the past of how we talk about it. Because most, I would say, Republicans and certainly industry people, they accept the way the issue is framed. So everyone's talking about net zero energy transition off fossil fuels. And they're like, great, I'm going to use that terminology. And whenever I hear new terminology, I'm suspicious because it's rarely good. Sometimes it is. But if I hear new terminology by my opponents, it's almost never good. Whereas you look at industry, they're like, oh, sustainability, everyone's using that. Let's talk about sustainability. ESG, let's talk about ESG. Net zero, let's talk about our net zero plan. Transition, I mean, it's, it's so parasitical and it's so dangerous. And, and what's possible, as I've shown and others have shown, is you can reframe it. 
So my whole perspective, you look at the subtitle of this book, it's why global human flourishing requires more oil, coal, and natural gas, not less. That's a reframe. And it's a very powerful reframe. And most people will agree with my goal if it's explicit. But if you're not willing to reframe it, then your thinking is going to be bad and you are not going to be persuasive in the right direction. That is all so well said. I just really want to encourage our audience, whether they're watching or, or listening to, if they're not familiar with your work, to become so. And, and that's especially for people who might think that there is, in fact, a climate emergency or a near climate emergency. And, and to that point, I have seen you do this uh, in video. I've seen you do this in person where someone maybe doesn't attack you, but rhetorically, philosophically, they start with the claim that there is a climate emergency, that there is this crisis of the climate. Let's say that I were doing that with you now. Mm-hmm. How would you respond? So, so what, what is it specifically? Just there is a climate? There is a climate. Th- there is a crisis in climate. And let's just say for the sake of being a devil's advocate that uh, I'm claiming that the president of the United States should declare a climate emergency. If, okay. if, if you were sitting with him or with, with the president, how would you respond? Well, so- Whenever I'm in a conversation, very early on, what I want to do is just get agreement on at least one basic thing, which is that we're going to carefully weigh the benefits and the side effects of fossil fuels. Because it's very important logically and rhetorically that you think of the climate impacts of fossil fuels as a side effect. And then part of that is you can't assume they're all bad and you certainly can't assume they're catastrophic and you certainly can't assume that there's nothing we can do about it. You certainly can't assume that the solution is to pick above all sun, solar and wind. Is the only, like all these implications are wrong, but it's it's a very important in our thinking. And this is most people still don't think the right way about this. They think of the issue as climate. No, the issue is energy, and climate impact is one aspect of energy. It's a side effect of all of our energy because all our energy uses fossil fuels. It's particularly a side effect of using fossil fuels directly, which uses more fossil fuels than say solar and wind, which use some but not as much. So. It's so the first thing before I jump into is there a climate emergency? I get like, would you agree that we need to look carefully at both the benefits and the side effects? We can't just look at the negative side effects and ignore the benefits. And then everyone will say yes, because you can't deny that. Nobody's going to deny that, even though nobody practices it. So, this is a principle. Whenever you have a principle that's common sense, not common practice, it's very advantageous for everyone to make it explicit and get them to commit to the common sense thing that otherwise they will not practice. So once we get there, it's like, okay, so the so your concern is that the side effects of burning fossil fuels, you know, that power our whole world, is they've created a climate emergency. And it depends, you know, I can be more or less Socratic, but if I it was that, it's gonna take too long. But the basic point I would make is okay, well, if somebody is is um so one thing is we need to look at the benefits of fossil fuels, because it could be that losing those is an emergency. And I would argue that, but let's just jump into climate first. Um so I would argue that I would kind of break it down. I mean, if I have time, it would be, okay, when I look at the climate effects of fossil fuels, there are kind of two things I need to look at. Would you agree? So one is when we're looking at the impacts of fossil fuels, we need to look with precision at both negative and positive impacts. Would you agree with that? And it's interesting, everyone would agree with that, but nobody does that in practice. Like you have to admit, okay, let's say they cause some greening or let's say warming is good in some places, you're open to that, right? And of course they'll say yes, but what I'm doing is I'm making them weigh this issue objectively in a humanistic way versus viewing it in a kind of primitive religious way, as in like, it's sinful for us to impact the climate. And so we shouldn't do it no matter what the consequences. So it's effect the, the effect, there's a commandment like thou shalt not impact climate. And it's like, if we do, we're going to nature, Gaia is going to punish us. That does seem like the 11th commandment right now. Right, right. It's really the first, no. <laughs> the zeroth. 
Um, so it's it's got that kind of. So I'm trying to get them out of this like this is evil. We're going to go to hell type perspective and just let's look at this clinically. So when you get when you break it down and like we're going to look at it with precision. And so part of that is, and people should try this because it works really well. Like like with sea level rise, for example, would you agree we need to be careful whether it's there's a big difference if it's two feet in a hundred years, like the UN says is likely to happen versus 20 feet in a few decades, which Al Gore implies in his movie. Like, would you agree? Those are two totally different things. And the first one we could probably deal with pretty well. And the second one would be a really big problem. And they're like, yeah. So even before I've gotten into any facts, I'm getting them to think about the issue in a pro-human way. And then the second thing I want them to agree to is, would you agree that we need to look at what I call the climate mastery benefits of fossil fuels? So fossil fuels are it's not like a prescription drug where you have benefits and side effects, but the benefits don't really help with the side effects. Fossil fuels can actually cure their own side effects. It's a very magical thing because let's say if fossil fuels cause more drought, 10% more drought, they can also help us alleviate drought through massive amounts of irrigation and massive amounts of drought relief related transportation. So it's hypothetically possible that fossil fuels could make drought a little bit worse or even a lot worse. But their, our ability to master drought would make us better off overall. And would you agree? I have to look at that. And that's yes. So, what I've done now is I'm getting them to look at it in a pro human, objective way, both the side effects and our ability to master the side effects with the benefits. And then I say, well, okay, yeah. So, the way I would judge are we in an emergency is what I would be looking at is are we suffering an increasing and rapidly increasing number of climate disasters? Because we've been burning fossil fuels for 170 years. And we have data on that. We know we've had about one degree Celsius, two degrees Fahrenheit, about two degrees Fahrenheit of warming. Like what's been happening to climate disaster deaths? Like, would you agree that's a pretty good way of measuring? It? Yeah. So, okay, those have gone down. You guys have been publicizing this lately, which I appreciate because it's a good stat. Like these are down 98% over the last century. And so what does this tell us? This tells us that we have an enormous unappreciated and really denied ability to master climate that's allowed us to overcome the incredible natural incredible amount of natural climate danger, which means that it's actually very hard to think of something that could come in the future that would really be a problem. And so, and then it's the issue of, is there really anything? So we've had 170 years, life has gotten way better, including we're safer from climate. Is there really any reason to believe that the next degree or two degrees is going to be the apocalypse? And you know, we'd go into it there, but I'd explain like, no, and then there are some some facts justifying that. But I hope people see just this is a totally different way of thinking about it, but it's nobody can refute it. Like you, nobody ever has. This is what's this is why I'm so curious what's going to happen in a year or two years once this is out because fossil future really lays this out much more clearly than even moral case did. It's like nobody can argue with the framework, and once you apply the framework, the facts are pretty obvious that everyone is like 180 degrees wrong, and you're getting more and more people seeing this. So I'm so curious. What's going to happen? You know, it's only been two months. So the book's done well, but what's going to happen in a year, two years when everyone knows how to argue this way? Well, and what's fascinating, among other things, about how you explained your response to that hypothetical, although the hypothetical is very real, isn't it? Yeah. Is that never once did you say or imply that that hypothetical questioner's claim about there being a climate emergency was foolish? That they somehow were a bad person for making the claim. Oh, interesting. And and rhetorically, which you know from your study of philosophy, that's a great way to have a conversation that can become a very fruitful conversation. And we obviously need more of that in, in America's political arena. And it's it's that that I want to ask you about next, Alex, and that's the political arena. Have you found 
elected officials, their staffs, policymakers generally more receptive to your work over the last few years? Because we know here at the Heritage Foundation that increasingly we have to work hard just to get the same terms of the debate when we're, we're having a conversation with policymakers across the political spectrum. Well, unfortunately, it's pretty partisan divide right now on this issue, which I don't actually can. I mean, my refrain is usually I'm too pro-freedom to be a Republican. So um, I don't identify really with either party, but on energy, Republicans are so much better than Democrats, unfortunately, right now. And it's really hard. There's some Democrats who are better. But for example, the, the first Build Back Better, I believe one Democrat voted against, even from the oil. So it's, that was really it's pretty telling, isn't it? It was really demoralizing to me. Um, so I'm still and and. I guess so. But even in the past, I would say that that influencing politics, you guys are kind of masters of this, but it's been a real project for me when, you know, when we first met and worked together, I had no, no real connections in politics. I didn't even know anyone. And I was very frustrated because I could never influence it. And in the last two years, I've built this thing called Energy Talking Points, including there's a free website, energytalkingpoints.com. But the core of it was and still is offering elected officials the best pro-human concise, powerful messaging that's really well referenced. And so I meet every two weeks with uh, officials from, we have over a hundred offices now that are part of it. And I offer them like free messaging advice. They can reach out to me anytime. And I found that people are really, really receptive to that. Actually, the reason I'm in town and I sent you a preview of this is I've created this thing called the Energy Freedom Platform, which I'm really encouraging them to use as a positive alternative. So not just attack what Democrats are doing, but offer a positive alternative based on certain principles. And so I found people really receptive to that. And what, what I suspected, and it took a while to actually get in and to know how to talk to people, but what I realized is, and I suspect this all along, is that there are a lot of politicians who are generally pro-freedom and pro-energy, but they don't know how to actually talk about it. And it's understandable because they got a million different issues and the culture teaches us how to think about it the wrong way, including people who are generally pro-freedom. And so what I've done is I've taken a lot of what's in this massive book that is, I think, very useful as a step-by-step just explain exactly why we need a fossil future. But I've broken everything down literally to Twitter length. So every talking point on energytalkingpoints.com is the length of a tweet. And there are hundreds of these things and they all add up and stuff. So I found people really receptive, but, but there is still the issue of, unfortunately, many Democrats are not receptive. Now, I'm hoping that because we have an energy crisis right now, and the establishment is starting to get discredited, not as much as they deserve, but starting to, that there, it will be a less partisan issue. Unfortunately, Senator Joe Manchin last night did not take a good step in this direction. Unfortunately not. Well, maybe you have time to come back to this proposed legislation, this deal, which of course, as you are, Heritage is, is working against. But I wanted to ask this question for the audience in case they're thinking about, they, they've drawn the following conclusion from our conversation already, that you are, in fact, the rigorous thinker that I had suggested you were. And secondly, they're enamored with how they might engage this conversation with a neighbor for, for that matter, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a member of Congress. But I also want to make sure that we give the audience a sense of your book. And about the book, Fossil Future, Alex, is there a particular fact or a particular statistic or a couple that you think would be helpful for people to know up front that they can be used and be particularly useful? to sway opinion, to, to change minds in ways that you've articulated. Yes. But I would say, so the most important thing about the book, which we really have gone into, and at least in term, particularly in terms of values and in terms of methods, 
is this is a book that's very clear that the existing framework of thinking about things makes no sense and is completely indefensible. And that what I call the human flourishing framework, nobody can argue with. And it's, it's, it sounds a little too arrogant, but it's very important that really the way we're taught to think about this makes no sense. And as I said, nobody can argue that we should only look at the negative side effects of fossil fuels, and yet almost everyone does. And at the highest levels, I show repeatedly in Fossil Future, you see this all over. And nobody can argue that it makes sense to eliminate CO2 emissions at all costs. And yet that's clearly what we're pursuing in the realm of energy. And it's having really all, or it's having small version of what could happen, but deadly costs around the world. And you know, Europe, I keep stressing this, but Europe in other interviews, like Europe is afraid of the winter. This is such an embarrassment. I mean, it's, it's, we really need to be embarrassed or even Texas is, a, is afraid of blackouts. I mean, for good reason, like Texas of all places, you're an ocean of natural gas. Like it's so, I mean, we're kind of getting worse than the grid in, you know, 1940 and just really regressing. So we should be embarrassed about this. Anyway, that's just an example of it makes no sense to eliminate CO2 emissions at all costs as that's your goal. And yet we do it. The other thing I mentioned in framework is it makes no sense to think of the planet as what I call a delicate nurturer, this perfect place that's stable and has sufficient resources and is safe. And our impact just ruins it. And we're this, I call this the polluter parasite, parasite polluter view of humans. All we do is plunder the earth, make it dirty. Like, but yet this is clearly how we think. We think of the climate as perfect and we broke it and ruined it. It's a profound way of thinking. I mean, that, that is uh, pervasive. Yes, yeah, it's, it, it's it is. pervasive. And yet the, the opposite, which I call wild potential, is that the earth is actually dynamic, deficient, and dangerous. And human beings are producer improvers who make it better. And so with all these three framing things, it's very hard to argue, almost impossible with the way I'm framing it. And yet almost no one is thinking of it this way. And then basically the first three chapters of the book are just showing that the common way of thinking about it ignores the side effects and is based on this goal of eliminating impact, particularly CO2, and this false assumption of a delicate nurture. That's why we ignore the benefits and we catastrophize it. We expect that it's nature is going to punish us with this hellish climate because we have this idea of we've ruined the delicate nurture, not because there's any science behind it. And, and then the rest of it is just, let's actually use a human flourishing framework to look at the facts so now, and look at the benefits and side effects. And I'll just give quickly the, the facts. These are, these are kind of the 10 most powerful facts, or I'll give close to 10, but just very quickly. So one is cost-effective energy is essential to human flourishing because it allows us to use machines to make ourselves productive and prosperous versus unproductive. And so that's point one. Point two is uh, cost-effective energy is desperately needed around the world. We have 3 billion people who use less electricity than one of our refrigerators. We have a third of the world still using wood and animal dung. We have 6 billion people who use an amount of energy that we in America would consider, the average American would consider totally unacceptable. So the world desperately needs this value. Number three, fossil fuels are a uniquely cost-effective source of energy. Fossil fuels provide 80% of the world's energy. They're particularly dominant in heavy-duty mobility in, and in industrial heat, both totally crucial realms. And fossil fuels are not only 80%, they are growing quite quickly, particularly in the parts of the world that care most about cost-effective energy, namely places like China. So this shows there's something special. Number four is uh, solar and wind have not proven to be cost-reducing substitutes. They have pr proven to be cost-adding supplements, namely the regions using the most solar and wind have the highest electricity prices, and they have not replaced fossil fuels. They've added to the cost of fossil fuels, and it's pretty obvious they can go near zero at any time. So if you try to get you basically need 100% backup. And the only way they seem cheap is if you only look at the cost of the solar panels, but not the backup, right? But that's like you have a car that works only a third of the time 
So you need a backup car, but you say, but you just say, hey, look how cheap my one third of the time car. No, you have to look at your cost of transportation, the full cost. So that's another thing. And then the fifth point is that fossil fuels give us, I mentioned this before, an incredible climate mastery ability. They allow us to use machines to make ourselves incredibly safe from climate through things like irrigation, drought relief, uh, heating, cooling, sturdy buildings, weather warning systems, et cetera. So like once you get that, those five facts, it's crucial. Fossil fuels are desperately needed and they give us this amazing ability to master climate, which basically means the climate side effects, if they're justifying any restriction of fossil fuels, let alone net zero, which we know would be like a, you know, a modern just, you know, mass murder of the globe. It would need to be a total difference in kind from anything we've experienced so far with, we've already been putting more CO2 in the atmosphere for 170 years. So it need to be a total difference in kind, like temperatures, you know, going like this or something like this, or we would need, um, we would need like storms two or three times more powerful. We need sea level rise multiple feet per decade. And the short version with the side effects is no, this isn't true. So we know that CO2 levels have been 15 times higher. Temperatures have been much warmer. The earth was a much more tropical place. We can't even get a quarter of the way there if we wanted to. So there's no, no possibility of the earth burning. All this stuff is just primitive nonsense. Uh, far more cold-related deaths than heat-related deaths. So it's not true the world is too hot. For the average person, it is too cold. Number three is warming occurs more in colder parts of the earth uh, than warmer parts of the earth. Also occurs more at night than during the day and also more in the winter than in the summer. Of course, you never hear this, but this is part of the mainstream uh, science. So that's three of them. The fourth is that um, the effect, the greenhouse effect is what's called a diminishing or logarithmic effect. So every new molecule of CO2 warms less than the last. So over time, even the more extreme models show it tapering off, which is a very important thing. So it doesn't go out of control. And then the fifth is that the actual UN documents, which have many problems, they show nothing that climate mastery cannot deal with. So if you look at sea level rises, the extreme projection is three feet in 100 years. We have 100 million people already living below high tide sea level. So that's 10 facts. And it's like, you don't hear most of those facts, but these are basically undeniable facts. It's like, it's pretty obvious once you know all the facts. 10 facts in four minutes. I mean, this th th this is really good intellect. But it's cool. Like, it's cool. Like, I, I encourage people to check out energytalkingpoints.com because it took me a long time to get it down to a science, but it's now like, these are the 10 facts. Like taking a long, like even it's, when I knew you, I didn't know, yeah, I didn't I was, know it to this level. I was just thinking that. And because I'd remember some conversations with you years ago now where you were working on this and we had great confidence it was going to happen. And that leads me to what will have to be one of our final questions, although hopefully over years and decades, you'll be a regular guest on this show. And it is with, with your group, Center for Industrial Progress, you have to work on something in addition to energy, right? In other words, no, it's just energy. Well, but so, then let me ask this question. Yeah. Clearly, you have thought because you think a lot about how your framework, how your approach to energy might be applicable to other policy areas. That's yes. where I'm trying this, to go. This is true for sure. So when I started it, so I called it Center for Industrial Progress. I would have it a different name if I restarted it. And I may even rename it the Center for Energy Progress or the Center for Human Empowerment, the Center for Human Flourishing. But at the time, it was like industrial progress. The goal was to have a positive alternative to the green movement. And I did expect to get into other issues. But the thing is, there's so a lot I'm to do in totally energy. So I'm not totally off base there's with a, that oh, assumption. Yeah, no, no, you're not totally off base at all. And it has huge implications, most obviously, for all the other, quote, high impact industries. So if you look at like chemicals, agriculture, mining, it's all the same stuff. It's all what I call the anti-impact framework opposing it, the view that human impact is immoral and self-destructive. 
and we should eliminate it, and then making arguments about it that ignore its benefits and catastrophize the side effects. So it occurs with every field. Uh, I used to think that I was going to go through every field and do it, but what happened is I noticed that in energy, it's actually it's more than a linear improvement. Like I feel like I've gotten way more, I've gotten better faster in the last three years than I did in three years before that and three years before that. So I found that just by specializing in this, I can take the science of framing it and explaining it to a higher level. And that makes it easier to teach because the higher level I'm at, like it's hard to teach someone at your, to have someone do exactly what you did. I mean, we'll find someone more talented someday and then they'll do it better in their own way. But insofar as people are trying to learn what I'm teaching, the higher level I'm at, I can only teach, you know, 60% or 50%. So I might as well push it high. So I want people in these other fields. And yes, there are absolutely implications for other fields. And I kind of, it's not part of my professional work, but just when I meet somebody promising, I'll just have a conversation with them about, hey, if you want to do it in healthcare, here's how you would do it. And maybe at some point I'll do seminars on it or something like that. But absolutely everything I'm saying, and particularly you read chapter 11 of the book about arguing to 100, it applies to every field. And everyone in pro-freedom movement, I want to be using this kind of approach. I, not that I've worked it all out, but I have I have ideas and I'm happy to share them with people. Well, we could sit here for a couple of hours. Uh, at least I could. We're going to miss the main event though. You know? Yeah, that's that's right. We have something we'll, else. Then, then we can't be moral anymore because we've alienated these 500 people. That, man, you're so consistent. You yeah, see? But we will have you back. Yeah. And I know that your work will continue to be very influential and probably increasingly so because of the rigor of your work the depth of the research, and hopefully because groups like Heritage and Life Powered and many other groups, thankfully, around the country who are helpful and, and also some, some really thoughtful scholars. But this is the last question. It, I always try with whomever the guest is to end on an optimistic note. Okay. And so, and but we don't believe in hollow optimism right. at Heritage or on this show, and I know that you don't. In spite of the, all of the obstacles, politically, economically around the world to getting energy policy right, how confident are you that over the next five or 10 years, we'll actually make so much progress in understanding this that we will have largely solved the problem? So the thing that makes me optimistic, I mean, one thing is we do have an unprecedented opportunity because we have a crisis. And when you have a crisis, people are more open to the idea that the establishment is wrong and that the people who predicted it, including me, are right. So that's one thing. It doesn't guarantee anything, but it gives you more of an opportunity. So I'm lucky that it took me so long to write this book and make it the way I wanted it, that it came out at the perfect time because I was worried, oh, it might not come out at the perfect time, but now it's the perfect time. The other thing that I'm most confident about is that with my arguments and to a certain extent, other people making similar arguments, I found that I can keep getting a lot better and then I get better reception. And I would say that what really would make me confident is if there were more organizations doing what you're doing now with Heritage in spreading it. Because like nobody has answers to these arguments. If you watch my debates, you watch people on Twitter, what the, I know you interact with some of my Twitter people, and they're like, you're not a climate scientist. That's their answer to everything I'm saying. To here. everything. That's everything. And it's, it's like people discover my little cadre of trolls that that just do this, but they don't have answers. These people won't even read the book. And it's, it's, they're so, the mainstream is so wrong on this. And I've developed the science of explaining it to such a degree of precision that it really just needs to be spread. And so I'd say, as I'd encourage people to sign up for my newsletter, energytalkingpoints.com, and I would ask you and others, you're already doing this, but introduce my book and my, and energytalkingpoints.com to as many influential people as you can. Because if this gets spread around enough, all the evidence we have so far is that it'll influence a lot of people and the other side will be exposed as not having an answer. The only thing that can happen is the other side will ignore it and then our side will ignore it. 
And that mostly hasn't happened. It's happened in some places. But my obsession is I just find new people who are interesting and influential and I give them signed copies of my book. So if you guys know of any hosts who might want to have me on or influential people, I have an unlimited supply of signed books I'm happy to give out. And that's really all it takes. I just need to go on their show and sign them a book. And eventually so many people will be good thinkers about this and it'll be so known about this framework and the essential facts that will really win. And that'll be really cool to have won an issue where everyone was thinking about it wrong and everyone thought they were right. And, and it seemed impossible. Well, that's a great charge <laughs> to leave us with. So Heritage will continue to do our part. And you part guys have done more. great, by the way. You guys were great on before you, the moral case for fossil fuels. Uh, Derek, who was here at the time, I remember I really appreciated. He gave me an audience and was on C-SPAN. And I really do appreciate when organizations are always looking to promote the best ideas, regardless of where they come from, versus just promoting their own in-house people. So I'm very grateful to you for having me and look forward to working together. Well, that will always continue. Alex Epstein, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. I told you you would enjoy that conversation. So stay tuned for the next episode with the next guest. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.